Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work yourself through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles where Paul encourages, mentors, and instructs these young leaders in how to minister to leaders and lay people in local churches. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in 2 Timothy 1. In previous segments we covered the introduction of the letter in verses 1 through 5, then the classic awesome verses 6 and 7, then verses 8 through 10, the context for those famous verses, and the digression he goes into as he talks about theology and extends that into natural worship. He's so blown away by who God is and what God has done that it naturally takes him to worship. And so then he settles back down into his argument here with verses 11 through 14 with a charge to himself, and then he applies it to Timothy. Verse 11, he writes, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So verses 11 and 12, he applies it to himself. Verses 13 and 14, he extends the charge to Timothy as he continues to encourage him. So let's break this down. Verse 11, Paul says he was appointed as a herald and an apostle and a teacher of this gospel. Let's talk about each of those. A herald in the Greek is one who proclaims an announcement from a king, a messenger who brings terms of peace or a truce, and an auctioneer who invites people to consider goods. And of course, all three of those are quite applicable to the Christian who is a minister, proclaiming an announcement from a king, a messenger who brings terms of peace, and an auctioneer who invites people to consider goods. He says he's a herald and an apostle. Both of those are ambassadors who speak for the one who sent him and based on the authority of the one who sent him. And then as we think about this in Christian pastoral terms, notice how well-rounded Paul's commissioning and his work is. Apostles are sent forth with the gospel. Preachers proclaim and herald it to those who have assembled and there are speaking about salvation and justification. And then a teacher instructs Christians about the gospel with respect to doctrine and applications. And this is the much more difficult and longer process of edification and sanctification. Paul elsewhere describes the ministry of pastors primarily in these terms. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And that is the primary call of pastors, to build their people up to works of ministry, to faith, to maturity, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, and so on. And so if you're not making yourself available for that sort of arrangement, that's on you. If your church doesn't provide that, that's on them. And you should find a church, find a church that has a process that is in line with obeying the commandments to church leaders in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. The church is about apostleship and preaching, but teaching is also absolutely essential to the ministry of the church, especially as laid out in Ephesians 4. Now in verse 12 in 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, That is why I'm suffering and I'm not ashamed. For among other reasons that his pursuit of the truth and living that out and doing the ministry he's been called to would ultimately be vindicated. Very similar language to what he used in verse 8. And the end of verse 12 is very powerful. He says, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Reminiscent, I think, of Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's convinced of that. He's convinced that Christ's mission for him and for the church in general is going to go forward. Now, this should inspire us as well as the gospel and as time, talent, and treasure are entrusted to us. And he'll talk about this with Timothy in just two verses. But this is the idea of stewardship and all the great things that God has given to pass along to other people. It's not just something we hold, it's something that we pass on. It's so all the parables about stewardship even back to Genesis, about the importance of the transmission of the faith. These are ideas that Paul is talking about here and that God's purposes will not be frustrated. Now, the reference to that day is also interesting at the end of verse 12, because that is almost certainly a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, a reference to 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us, speaking to believers, may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and we're judged on those and we receive rewards. And that's described throughout the scriptures. I talk about this in episode 24 of The Word Diet. Certainly, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 is helpful for this idea as well. We're all building on the foundation of Christ, but what are you building? And that's going to be judged. So there are rewards in heaven for Christians. Now, Paul says he had entrusted his life and his work to God. What exactly does that mean? It could mean his own soul, but that seems not really worth mentioning. It could also be his broad confidence that the gospel would continue to progress even after his death. 
But I think most likely it's that he has trusted what he has done. His work for the Lord would continue to bear fruit rather than be in vain. Zane Hodges says about this how superlatively well-placed this confidence was, history now informs us. Can anyone measure the total effects of Paul's life and work, the souls won, the Christians strengthened, through the writings which all flowed naturally out of that life and have been preserved by God? The divine interest that has accrued on the deposit made 1,900 years ago defies the human mind to calculate or compute. And I think that's exactly right. Can you imagine that Paul entrusts his work to the Lord and the amazing fruit that has come from that? But it's not just what he had trusted, it's whom he had believed and that he is convinced of it. His confidence is based on a who, not a what. That's what he believed. That's who he believed. And this is a personal thing, not so much intellectual. It's intellectual in the sense that it's based on the promises of God. He's seen God work in his life. So there's certainly an intellectual reason, logic piece of it. But ultimately, it's personal. It's whom he had believed. That's why he is convinced. And remember that all of this is meant to encourage Timothy And that's where he takes things in verses 13 and 14. In those two verses, the key verb is keep or hold fast to, a fairly aggressive verb. And the key noun, what they're holding to, Timothy and others who follow in his footsteps, is sound teaching. Paul has used this phrasing elsewhere in the pastoral epistles. For example, 1 Timothy 1.10, he refers to sound doctrine as a catch-all versus a mere list of sins. He talks about the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, gives a list of sins, but then wraps it up with, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. So the phrase is meant to be all-encompassing of what is expected of the believer in terms of doctrine. It's also in Titus 1.9 where Paul writes, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And here it's being used as a prerequisite for deacons and elders that they be able to encourage and refute based on that sound doctrine or sound teaching. There's a number of modifiers in this passage here in verses 13 and 14. First, he talks about the pattern of sound teaching, again, underlining that it is a body of teaching, not just a handful of miscellaneous truths. We see this in Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. As Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders, he says, Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So there's something large here, comprehensive, that Paul has in mind. This is the pattern of sound teaching, the whole thing, not half of it, not adding things to it, not distorting it as the false teachers often did. The phrase that's also interesting here is what you heard from me. So as we'll detail in chapter 2, verse 2, there's a chain of succession here that it's passed on from one person to another to another, and it underlines the apostolic authority of Paul that he is passing along to Timothy who will pass it along to others. And another key phrase, it's to be done with faith and love in Christ Jesus. So the sound teaching is fine, but if not accompanied by faith and love, it's to no avail or worse. Number of things to say here. First, that it's faith that he mentions. It's not that you're going to understand everything. Faith has a part in understanding or embracing at least 
the sound teachings. Second, the combination of faith and love is interesting. Faith is clearly a vertical thing. Love is both vertical and horizontal. He probably means something horizontal here. If we don't love God, then the faith is going to be messed up. But it's probably that the faith is vertical and the love is horizontal. You have to have that combination to minister well. I like the combination as well because it speaks to the importance of doctrine and experience, both our own and as we live this out with others. The doctrine is living and breathing. It's hard to put things down in words. Doctrine is necessarily limited. It's crucial, but also limited rules and stuff take us to legalism. It's lived out in our own life and in the one another's of Scripture as we live it out with others. And I think the largest point I've already made, but let's reiterate it, that knowledge is never for its own sake. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1, we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. We have to be very careful that the knowledge does not trump love and faith. And so here in practice, he's looking to combine truth and grace, love, empathy, and compassion in what this looks like. Imagine this verse without that phrase. It would just be a focus on the teaching and the doctrine without the faith and the love that are an absolutely essential complement to the delivery of that sound teaching. In verse 14, he says to guard the good, literally beautiful deposit that was entrusted to you. Similar to what he says among his last words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, guard what has been entrusted to your care. And I like 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 here. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Now the verb guard here is interesting because you're guarding it against certainly various sins, but also entanglements as Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about. Everything that hinders can get in the way as well. But given the prevalence of his writing on it in First and Second Timothy, Paul is certainly concerned about heresy in particular. Walvern and Zook say to preserve sound teaching from becoming corrupted through distortion, dilution, deletion, and addition. Now in verse 12, Paul had talked about what he had entrusted to God. Now he's talking about what has been entrusted to Timothy, and it's the same word. And this is especially important or difficult in light of apostasy and apparent persecution that he's going to talk about in verse 15, and again, the prevalence of false teaching. I think the phrase is interesting here, verse 12 to verse 14, we put our trust in God, and he puts his trust in us. It's a matter of his provision and our participation. Again, the idea of stewardship is the easiest way to imagine this. And of course, this is only possible, especially for one who struggled with timidity, like Timothy, with the end of verse 14, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Again, a matter of God's provision and his and our participation. If you look at all of these verses together, Paul has encouraged Timothy, charged him, exhorted him to proclaim, to be willing to suffer for, and to defend the gospel. And verses 13 and 14 in particular is a summary of the entire book which Paul will continue to work out in detail from here forward. All right, this is a good place to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered 2 Timothy 1, verses 11 through 14, and that takes us to 15 through 18. 
You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Now, verse 15 is rough business. Everyone in Asia, the province of Asia, that is, has deserted me, including two people he names, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, everyone is probably hyperbole for a mass desertion. For example, Acts 19.10, Luke writes, all heard the gospel. Well, all didn't hear the gospel, but a lot of people did. And if you look at mass desertion, that's probably somewhat reasonable following his arrest and the subsequent natural fears that go with that. It's not ideal, nowhere near it, but these are very difficult circumstances. Some people will rise to the call and the challenge, and other people will not. And so in this, the desertion would be much like Jesus, uh, that he had been deserted when that was not deserved. Difficult circumstances for the disciples, but they deserted Christ like everyone has deserted Paul. Now, that doesn't mean they were deserting the faith. Walvert and Zook note, a general failure to support the apostle in his personal time of need is probably what's happening. Again, difficult circumstances. Sometimes people don't rise to it. It doesn't mean that they have blown off the faith any more than Peter did with Jesus. Verse 16, Paul mentions ashamed, and that's probably the issue, but maybe there were other concerns. They were busy with daily life. Either way, it still felt like desertion. When you're in a tough spot, like Paul was, and people are too busy for you, it feels like you've been deserted. They should be stepping up in your time of need, but they're not doing it. But then verses 16 through 18 is quite the bright spot. It's Onesiphorus, and he speaks mercy on him and his household in verses 16 and 18. He'll mention it again in chapter 4, verse 19, given some details later in verse 16, how often he had refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Again, this is in stark contrast to the desertion of so many others in verse 15. Verse 17, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. And that includes his travels there. Finding him was difficult. Getting there was difficult and costly. Onesiphorus showing great faith and love for Paul in pursuing this, searching him out until he found him. And then verse 18, the how many ways he had helped me in Ephesus. And so in all of this, we see perseverance, a long-term relationship. It's easy to love people short-term, but Onesiphorus was in it for the long-term. Commentators note that the passage reads as if Onesiphorus may have died, perhaps in service to Paul or others. A lot of past tense here, a lot of asking for mercy uh, and so that could likely be the case. In any case, verse 16, Christ may show, and verse 18, Christ may grant, is a picture of God's provision. But verse 18, that he might find, if he is alive, this would be a matter of his participation. But the larger point is the courage, power, love, and self-discipline, sound mind that Paul had talked about back in verse 7, is now illustrated in practice to Paul. In the face of risk and then with perseverance, he was a friend who stuck closer than a brother, quoting Proverbs 18.24. Now, these two sets of people exemplify Paul's distinction 
between courage, faithfulness, and so on, versus fear, unfaithfulness, and so on. What Paul has called and will continue to call Timothy to do and to avoid. Notice again the phrase, on that day, in verse 18, he had talked about that phrase as well in verse 12, and there's judgment for each. We're judged according to our works, even as believers. We're not saved by good works. We're saved to do good works. Those are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. When Paul uses on that day, that is what he's talking about here, the judgment for faithfulness and unfaithfulness in verses 12 and 18. Practically, it's interesting that he uses personal examples to better motivate Timothy, who would want to be like Onesiphorus and not like the others who had disappointed him. Also interesting that given that the letter would be at least somewhat public, it's noteworthy that Paul calls out individuals for public praise and especially for public rebuke. The only example of this I can think of, and it's a stronger example, is Galatians 2, 11 through 14, where Paul directly calls out Peter. But Paul is calling out these people that have let him down as well. And so it's interesting that he doesn't shy away from some degree of public rebuke here. Not something we're very comfortable with, maybe not in any time, but certainly in modern times, this is something we struggle with, church discipline, public rebuke when appropriate. But Paul has no problem doing it here. All right, let's start into chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Verse 1, I think, is quite straightforward, a nice introduction to the next part of the letter. He starts with you then, and the word you is at the opening of the Greek text, which puts emphasis on Timothy, you, and the word then connects it back to the themes that he's been developing in chapter 1. In fact, verses 1 and 2 is a summary of chapter 1. You then, my son, same language used in chapter 1, verse 2. We talked about the intimacy of that, the personal relationship that he has with Timothy. It's not some sterile mentorship. It is a loving relationship. Paul sees himself as a father to Timothy as a son. And then be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Similar language to chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, particularly strength, but also grace. It's kind of a funny phrase. Can you be weak in the grace? But it's an encouragement to be strong in the grace, to rely on the grace that we have in Christ Jesus, not just how we're saved, but how we are sanctified in daily life. The process of walking with God is also a matter of grace. It's not from within, but it is from above. We're not to be strong in ourselves. We're to depend on Christ, not just his grace for salvation, but his everyday grace as we walk with him in the process of sanctification. Some great verses here, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Also like Philippians 4, 11 through 13 here, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
Verse 13 is the famous one, but notice that it's God's provision and our participation. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Don't try to do half the verse. doesn't work that way. But also notice that in Philippians 4, there's a process that he's talking about. I have learned, he says twice. I know he's learned over time about these things. And so we learn through the grace of God to walk more effectively in the world he's given us. Verse 2 is first about hearing and then second about transmitting the faith. But we don't have time for that discussion in this segment. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous segments, we had gotten through 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And before we get going today, I want to back up a little bit to chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. That is Paul's primary charge to Timothy and arguably the thesis of the entire book. And it also sets the table for the key verse 2 of chapter 2. So let me read that, verses 13 and 14. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And we've talked about that already at great length. But then that leads really to verse 2 of chapter 2. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And this is Paul's formula in a nutshell for what this sort of ministry would look like. The hearing of verse 2 should lead to the transmission later in verse 2. And this is actually a key angle in reading the book of Genesis. How is the faith going to be passed along from one generation to another? The focus in Genesis is on a family and a family that's looking forward to becoming a nation And the punchline from this angle would be, if you can't get the family right, you're not going to get the nation right. But it's a key issue. How does Abraham pass his faith or some semblance of that faith to Isaac? How does Isaac pass it on to Esau and Jacob? How does Jacob pass it on to his sons? Without the transmission of the faith, the faith dies. It's only one generation away from going away. And so what does it look like for Paul to encourage Timothy to encourage others so that the faith continues to be strong and to grow. So Paul says the instructions here, entrust these things, the things he's been talking about, to reliable men. Again, this is part of what he talked about in verses 11 through 14. And then the next step, who will also be qualified to teach others. Now we've seen Paul talk about the ability to teach. He'll do it again in chapter 2, verse 24. And it was a prerequisite for elders and deacons, leaders of the church, back in 1 Timothy 3.2, and it will be as well in Titus 1.9. So there's many things to say here. First of all, that the teachers must be reliable and qualified. They must be able. And so they must have integrity, a life worth modeling, and they must have the ability to, first of all, know and then communicate the truth. There's a lot of things actually involved in that, knowing it, communicating it, then having a life that backs it up. Second thing to note is the word entrust is a banking term, and it's used for making a deposit. I think we can also draw an application here to our ability, both as an opportunity and a danger, to live on previous capital, ours and those in our family and maybe the previous generation. It's important that we continue to make those deposits, but there's a sense in which we are carrying forward what has already been deposited, and what does that look like for each generation, for each person. A pastor in Texas, I think, is helpful on this verse. He talks about three parts of it. There's a prerequisite from the past that you must have something to pass along. 
There must be preparation before the presentation. For example, chapter 1, verse 13, Paul had talked about sound words, sound doctrine. Verse 14, the good deposit. Verse 1, he said, in the presence of many witnesses, which implies a public and unashamed nature of the teaching that is to be passed along. After the prerequisite of the past, you have the process of the present. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the Great Commission includes something we often overlook, which is Jesus commanding them to teach the disciples and others to obey everything that he had taught them. There's a process here. And the third is the product that is the result of this process and the prerequisite, the preparation that went into the presentation. The product is the ability to teach others in what turns out to be spiritual multiplication. And this idea goes actually all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and the idea of dominion. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky or the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image and the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And it's not simply taking care of apple trees that God has in mind at this point. It's back to the kingdom workers that Jesus is talking about and the multiplication process that he put in place through the 12 disciples, through Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, and as Paul has continued in passages like Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, where the top command to pastors is to develop their people, to disciple and train the believers in the church. Fourth, notice that there are four generations mentioned in verse 2. You've got Paul, Timothy, reliable people that Timothy would pass the commission on to, and those people would teach others. So four generations. This is actually duplicated in Joel 1, verse 3. Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Again, the idea of four generations of multiplication. If the sort of discipleship you're doing or what you think is discipleship doesn't aim for multiple generations, then it's not much discipleship, really. It's not rigorous. It's not ultimately what God intends us to do with the power of what's being described in 2 Timothy 2.2 and in Joel 1.3. Eugene Peterson notes that Jesus' plan to reach you and me was to invest his life into 12 Jewish men. And so we relate to people one at a time. It's fine to work with the crowds, to love the people around us, but a focus on the 12 is the preeminent part of Jesus's ministry, his focus on the disciples. He was often with individuals. He quite a bit spoke to the crowd, but he spent all of his time, most of his time, with those 12 men, and that's the reason we're here today. Barclay observes the teacher is a link in the living chain which stretches unbroken from this present moment back to Jesus Christ, and we're to be a part of that living chain looking back and working forward especially as Paul approaches the end of his life, you can imagine why he has such a great interest in transmission and faithfulness to the Great Commission, which includes robust discipleship. Finally, in summarizing, in a nutshell, this implies a plan for mentoring, discipleship, and so on in line with what Paul commands in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, which includes many things, the importance of trust and relationships, the need for ample time to train, to communicate knowledge, vision, relationships, skills, and so on. 
requires a tempered ego. It's not so much about learning stuff as it is learning humility and empathy and other things. It's not just simply a Bible study. This is, in fact, the final memory verse in our 21-month curriculum called DC Thoroughly Equipped because it is the utmost summary of what we're trying to achieve through that curriculum, a disciple-making, multiplying movement to create an army of kingdom workers to do great work in God's kingdom. In the Life Application Bible, it says if the church were to consistently follow this advice, it would expand geometrically as well-taught believers would teach others and commission them in turn to teach still others. Disciples need to be equipped to pass on their faith. Our work is not done until new believers are able to make disciples of others. Conversion is fine. Rescuing sick people is fine. But the ultimate work is discipleship and empowering people to be all they can be, the abundant life, the disciple-making mentality, vision, and skills to make a huge difference in the kingdom of God. Make yourself available to such training and call your church to provide such training if they're not doing so already. Okay, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered 2 Timothy 2.2, and that takes us to chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Verse 3 in most manuscripts and many translations opens with the word therefore, which connects it back to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and maybe prior to that as well. The point in a nutshell is that the life that counts, what Paul has just described, will be a life that costs. In verses 3 through 6, he uses three metaphors. He uses all three of these also in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 24, and all of them point to a candid assessment of the hardships of the high calling that Paul has received and is commissioning Timothy to pass on to others reminiscent of Jesus talking about counting the cost with two stories in Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. The first analogy is to soldiers in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And verse 4, soldiers don't get involved in civilian affairs and they want to please their commanding officers. This is an especially popular analogy for Paul on what is then a familiar concept for those who know the New Testament. It shows up over and over again in Paul's writing. And you can see why, because the Christian life, in a sense, is a war of a sort. We certainly know this from references to spiritual warfare or Old Testament pictures of battle, which provide an analogy to the importance of not compromising at all with sin. We need complete victory of a sort that is modeled by war. The passage here points to certain things, and there are certainly other things inherent in the analogy. It's important to avoid worldly entanglements. 
Hebrews 12.1, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So the chief analogy there is running, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But the everything that hinders certainly fits with what Paul is talking about here. Sin entangles, and we certainly want to avoid that, but even things that hinder us, that are neutral or even good, are to be avoided at times because they get in the way of something that is greater. The picture of a soldier also leads to the idea of putting others first, the importance of discipline, the importance of being focused, willingness to risk, to suffer, to sacrifice, to bear wounds and hardships. Paul also brings in a reference to the commanding officer, which is interesting. A soldier needs to be loyal and obedient in his followership. One reason for this is that he's only able to see a small piece of the big picture. And so there's a call for a sense of detachment within faith in the leader himself. Barclay says, involved as the soldier is in the midst of the battle, he cannot see the overall picture the decisions he must leave to the commander who sees the whole field. It's also interesting in that day that the commanding officers were the ones who provided provision, the food, shelter, and equipment for the task at hand. And so Paul's listeners would have understood that. And so the soldier ends up being a wonderful picture of dealing with God's enemies, defending and extending the kingdom through God's word, and of course, working with and defending his people in that kingdom. So a wonderful analogy that Paul puts to great effect. Second analogy is to athletes, probably his second most favored analogy to such things. We see this in 1 Corinthians 9. He'll refer to it again in 2 Timothy 4. We see it in Philippians 2 and 3, and of course Hebrews 12, 1 that I just read. And the key point that he notes here is that they must compete according to the rules. And this is a reference First to Roman soldiers in verses 3 and 4, now he's applying the principle of the Greek games, the Olympic games, and the reference to the rules would be that in the context of those Olympic games, the need for training and competing as professionals rather than amateurs. Again, like the soldier analogy, the idea of focus. I think for the Christian, the first thing we think of with law and rules is wondering about legalism, justification, sanctification, what's the role of the law? And here, this is not a works-based salvation that he's referring to, but he's saying that within sanctification, within the living with God, being effective for God, there are certain rules and principles that have to be followed for that to be the case. The context here, again, is training, competing, being a professional as an athlete. And so this implies the need for rigorous training, discipline, endurance. And think of all the hard work behind the scenes that precedes a public performance that we might cheer from the stands. They make it look easy. They often lose, and it's not the winning per se, but it's that they gave it their best effort. There are to be no shortcuts, no cheating. And certainly we see the role for spiritual disciplines here, things like being careful with what an athlete would eat, how they exercise, what they abstain from, what they moderate in their appetites, being submissive to the master who trains them, and again, avoiding inclinations to take shortcuts in our spiritual development, as well as when we participate in the games, so to speak. And then third, in verse six, there's an analogy to farmers and how hardworking they are. 
Paul doesn't use farmers as often, but he certainly uses this characteristic of working hard as something that he underlines. In 1 Timothy 4.10, he talks about laboring and striving. In 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18, he praises the ox for its hard labor and compares that to the pastors of a church, the elders. Romans 16.6 and 12, he commends two ladies for their hard work. 1 Corinthians 4.12, we work hard with our own hands. 2 Corinthians 6.5, he refers to beatings, imprisonments, and riots in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger as part of his list of difficulties that he went through. 2 Corinthians 11.27, I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. Or Colossians 1.29 through 2.1, to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Again, Paul continues to underline his hard work. With respect to farming, we see this theme in the book of Proverbs repeatedly, that the farmer should be the first one to receive the share of the crops, that the sluggard does not receive his reward, and so on. The hardworking farmer is a prevalent theme in the book of Proverbs. Stott observes that in verse 5, Paul's talking about playing fair. In verse 6, he's talking about working hard. And then Stott says, however poor the soil inclement the weather, or disincline the farmer, he must keep at his work. By analogy, we have crops as a representation of a harvest of personal holiness. We see Paul pursue this in Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 6 with reaping and sowing. It can also be used as souls within evangelization. In Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. John 4, 34 through 38 is another great passage on this. The parable of the sower, which talks about the hundredfold crop, is another reference. And in all of these cases, it's pointing to both earthly and heavenly rewards, the need for work and perseverance to work and then wait patiently while still tending the soil and the crop. On all of this, John Stock quotes Ryle, who says, I should as soon expect a farmer to prosper in business who contented himself with sowing his fields and never looking at them till harvest, as expect a believer to attain much holiness who is not diligent about his Bible reading, his prayers, and the use of his Sundays. Another cool thing is that if you have more land, you can generally be more productive. You think of the prayer of Jabez asking for more territory, and so the farmer will have more fruit, all things equal, if they have more land, more dominion, more ability to influence the earth. And the same thing is true of the kingdom worker as a farmer as well. Farmers are also known for doing things with little fanfare. The need for patience. Think of Galatians 5, 7, and 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So being patient, not getting excited, not being flashy, just keep working the soil. And then a really clear combination of God's provision and our participation. We see this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9 in particular. Paul says, I planted this seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So a great passage on farming and spiritual work. So in each of these three analogies, 
the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, it's hard work and many other characteristics that lead to a valuable non-monetary reward that provides physical and spiritual sustenance. On the idea of Paul's hard work, Stott says the blessing of God rested upon his ministry in quite exceptional measure, but I find myself wondering if we attribute it sufficiently to the zeal and zest, the almost obsessional devotion with which he gave himself to the work. He gave and did not count the cost. He fought and did not heed the wounds. He toiled and did not seek for rest. He labored and asked for no reward except the joy of doing his Lord's will, and God prospered his efforts. And I think that's right. God provided a staggering amount of provision and grace to Paul's ministry, but Paul worked his tail off. I love 1 Corinthians 15, 10 on this. Paul writes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I worked harder than all of them, but it was God's grace within me that did it. It's not 50-50, God's provision and our participation. It's 100% of both. Or think of the wicked and lazy servant of Matthew 25, who in fear fails to put the work in and does not invest the talents appropriately. Instead of wicked and lazy servant, we want the Lord to say to us, good and faithful servant. We need to put the work in, in tandem with the grand and great provision of God. And then finally, in verse 7, Paul encourages Timothy to reflect on all of this so the Lord would give him insight. And it's the same thing that's true with us on this passage. And in general, again, we have the formula of God's provision and his participation. He is to reflect on it so the Lord would give him insight. Stott observes this is a combination of human study and divine illumination. And it's important for us to rely on and balance both of them. Again, it's not 50-50, it's 100-100. Dwight Edwards says our responsibility to meditate and trust that God will fulfill his role to reveal, diligently search, and divinely reveal. That's the combination we're looking for. For novices in scripture, I think this gets to a lack of vision from them and not usually communicated about the power of God's word and their ability to access the beauty of the scriptures, to learn how to read and to read carefully. Many times in the church, we encourage people to read the Bible, but we don't give any help. We don't give a workable plan. We don't provide any accountability. My book, The Word Diet, is a literacy project aimed at that. Churches often don't have any kind of plan. If they don't, they should consider The Word Diet or some tool like that to actually help people go from wishful thinking to actually reading the Word of God. I think an application on verse 7 for teachers of the Scripture is they're very quick sometimes to go to commentaries. When I work with people to help them teach, they want to go very quickly to what other people have said instead of reflecting on the text on their own, praying to the Spirit, relying on the insights that the Lord gives. There's a great place for commentaries. They're wonderful tools, but you don't go to them immediately. The Lord will reveal. Divine revelation is what Paul is talking about in addition to our work with the text. A few other closing thoughts on verses 3 through 6 for church and church leaders and lay people. I think a lot of times people look at the word and they say, well, I'm working hard at my faith and my walk or even reading the scripture. But there's a difference between working hard and working smart. And some people need both. They're not doing either. So we have a book called Roll Up Your Sleeves that helps call people to that, gives a vision, gives a plan for what that looks like. You can be a hardworking farmer and not get anything done because you're not working smart. It's important to do both, to get help from those who have gone there before you. 
And second, with respect to church leaders, I think a lot of times they wonder why they can't get enough people to serve or enough people to give. And the root problem is you don't have disciples in your church. If you had lots of disciples, all those things would follow naturally. Why don't you have disciples? Well, maybe you're not making disciples. We have a book called Enough Horses in the Barn that calls church leaders to develop disciples and disciple makers. There's not much energy in that, unfortunately. It's not consistent with the ministry model of Jesus. If you don't have disciples, if you don't have enough horses in the barn, what's your plan for getting there? Our ministry helps with that all the time. If you have any questions, we're happy to talk with you whenever you want. The website is thoroughlyequipped.org. We find ourselves in a post-Christian era, and we send out our people with butter knives to a gunfight. It's simply not enough. Let's call our people to be soldiers, athletes, and farmers, and then equip them for the work. Lord, help us to do this. It is sloppy, it is difficult, it's time-consuming, but it is the work you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.